Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 358 of Forgotten Classics, chapters 3 and 4 of The Wind Boy. But first, let's talk about a podcast highlight that you may have read about on the blog, but wouldn't have shown up in the podcast feed. It's a fairly new podcast called More is More, and it is done by Hannah and Rose, who are my daughters. So, of course, I like it. It's a bad movie podcast. So every two weeks, they tell us about a new bad movie. This goes along with the history of our family, where we have a long history of enjoying bad movies, or at least talking about them. And Hannah and Rose are funny and insightful, and they love bad movies enough to specifically go to see them at the movie theater, which is a lot more dedication than I have. I have to be tricked into a bad movie. Now, that's one reason I like this podcast is because they just take you through the bad movie in enough detail that you don't have to have seen it for yourself. You get all their comments And they also discuss the story elements that went wrong and why. How it could have been a better movie or the big places where they went astray. Some of the movies they've discussed are The Scorpion King, Highlander, a series on the Transformers where they're almost done discussing them and they don't discuss them one right after the other because I couldn't take that and I don't know if they could take watching them all in a row. But they will talk about one of them, and then do two other movies in between. Dracula 2000, Jupiter Ascending, Frozen. Yes, Frozen. And they put a warning in up front on that one. If you love this movie, don't listen to this episode. (laughs) Anyway, if this is the kind of thing you like, you're going to like it. Give More is More a try. Now let's talk about The Wind Boy. We just got two chapters, but we met a whole cast of characters. Nan, the girl from the mountains, the policeman, who will come up later, in fact, this very episode, Kay and Gentian, who are, of course, the main movers in the story, their mother, who's an artist, and we didn't meet but saw the masker, the mysterious masker who is terrifying the village, who there's a reward out for. Hmm. Nan's the only one who doesn't seem afraid of him. Although, to be fair, their mother doesn't seem to be afraid. She just deplores the fact that it's terrifying the children. So the scene has been set. We see Detra working on the Wind Boy statue. And this brings up an interesting little discussion on creativity from Nan, where she says, you know, the mother couldn't be creating this if the wind boy wasn't really true somehow, if there wasn't a real wind boy for her to work from. We're going to see more as the story goes along about this idea of creativity and artists and the truth that they convey in their art. It's a very big subtext for where this story will go. So that has been a fairly real-life beginning Nothing too much out of the ordinary, except for maybe those mountains that the policeman saw in Nan's eyes. However, in this episode, we're going to have one foot in reality, and the other? Oh, fantasy. For sure, fantasy. So let's dive in to the Wind Boy. 
Chapter 3 Shopping with Nan The next morning, the children woke so late that Detra had already gone to her work. Their first thought was of Nan. Would she still be there? Or was last night just a dream made up by their lonely hearts? When they remembered the starry brightness night robe, they thought it might very well be a dream. But no, when they got downstairs, there she was, busy with soap and clean white cloths, washing the kitchen windows. And their breakfast was waiting for them in the sitting room on the table by the tulip bowl. The wind boy was on the table, too, just in front of Jenshin's place, for Mother had been too tired to put him away last night, and in the morning she never had time for anything. "'You see, Mother tried to make him smile last night,' said Kay, looking closely at the little figure. "'See? She turned his mouth up at the corners. But it's not the right kind of smile for all that. It looks troubled.' "'He is bothered.' Genshin agreed quietly. The real one, I mean, she added, nodding toward the garden. Something has gone wrong with him, and he is not happy. Kay looked at his sister doubtfully, but Genshin gazed steadily back. She was not laughing. Somehow, during last night's sleep, she had come sure for herself about the wind boy, and did not just have to take Nan's word for him any more. He must be real, and not far off. How else could Mother have found out about him at all? But as Kay wondered, there came a sudden loud knock at the door. It was so loud and so unexpected that it made the children jump. No one but the milkman and the grocer came to the door of the little brown house in the morning, and the milkman had already been, for here was the good cream on their cereal, and the grocer never got around so early. Before they could remember to jump up and answer the surprising knock, Nan had come in from the kitchen and gone to the door. The children heard her say, "'Good morning, Mr. Policeman. Is there something?' Then they heard the policeman's deep, sudden voice. "'Yes, there is something, those two rascally children. Which of them is it? I've come to find out.' At the policeman's rough, sudden words, Nan had backed away from him, and he stepped into the hall, and now almost pushed her into the sitting-room where the children sat, frozen, listening. Nan looked at the children over her shoulder, and their wide eyes and frightened faces made her straighten up and face the policeman, refusing to let him come one step farther. And although she was just a girl with short curls in her neck, she seemed very tall and protecting to the children back in the room. "'What do you mean? What do you want?' she asked the policeman in a cool, clear voice. "'What I want is to know which one of them's doing this funny business with the mask. For one of them it must be. I'm on the right track at last.' "'I'm glad if you are really on the right track,' Nan said then. "'It's horrid and a shame to frighten children. Whom do you suspect?' "'Suspect? I know.' "'Well, who?' "'One of those children over there.' He nodded his head toward the children. Kay's heart sank with doubt of what might happen, and Gentian trembled, for the policeman in his bright blue uniform with its brass buttons and his high helmet had always filled them with awe and a little anxiety, even though they had done nothing wrong. And now to have him in the very room with them, nodding toward them and calling them rascally, well, it was pretty terrible. But Nan stayed calm. No, 
Oh, no, you have made a mistake, she said. The masker did come and look in at our window last night. I was sitting here over there on that bench with the children telling them stories. It looked right in at the window by our heads. I tried to catch it, but it ducked and ran. So you see, it couldn't have been either Kay or Gentian. The policeman looked at Nan as she spoke, and she looked steadily back at him. But as he looked, he forgot all about Nan. He thought he was standing on a mountain trail. Underfoot, pine needles lay golden in sunlight. The purple mountain was over him. He believed what the wind said, and the stream nearby, and the murmuring branches. No one doubts those voices. And what was it they were saying? You see, it couldn't have been Kay or Jenshin. The dream lasted but a second, if it were a dream, and there was Nan again. Her voice was like the voices of the mountain. You could not doubt what it said. It's strange, he apologized, beginning to back out into the hall. But you yourself said it did come in here and right up to the window. I watched it that far. It came stealing through the hole in the lilac hedge. I didn't stop to open the gate, but jumped it. I tripped, though, and got a tumble, losing sight of the masker. I didn't see it again, although I went all around your house. Then I thought it must have gone back to the hole in the hedge, and I went into the artist's ground to search. That took a long time, and there was nothing there. Then I made up my mind the masker must have got into this house. Then it came to me it was one of these children, but by that time it was long after dark and your lights were out, save the one in the sitting room. I thought you all must be asleep, except the mother, who I saw through the window working on a sort of statue. I hadn't a mind to disturb her. She looked so tired. And anyhow, she wasn't the masker. I could see that. She would never frighten children. No, and you wouldn't either, Nan said, glancing toward Kay and Gentian, and then back to the policeman. No, you're right, I wouldn't, he agreed. "'Sorry I bothered you.' And he went out of the door. The children heard his steps on the path and out through the gate. They ran and threw their arms about Nan. "'Oh, you saved us!' they cried. But Nan laughed at that. "'He wouldn't have done you any harm. Nothing to be afraid of.' "'Well, perhaps he wouldn't hurt us,' Kay said thoughtfully. But it was rather frightening all the same. And think how Mother would feel if they said we were the masker. She wants the village people to like us and be friendly with us. She says we may live here all our lives and that everything depends on their friendliness. She's so sad now because they laugh at us and tease us. And because we hate to go to school, why we don't tell her what they do to us any more because it makes her face so sad. And now, if they should think one of us was the masker, well, that would be much, much worse. It seemed such a nice village as I came through, Nan said thoughtfully. It is not right that you should be lonely here. There are so many jolly-looking children. Yes, yes, Kay explained. But we are so slow at learning their language, you see. And we wear such queer clothes, they think. And we're stupid in school. That is dreadful. At home, we were never stupid. But you understand all I say quickly enough, Nan wondered. And you answer without difficulty. Yes, but you talk so smoothly, so clearly. Why, I never think about words at all when you speak just about what you mean, Kay said happily. Nor do I, 
agreed Gentian. Why, Nan, I believe I would understand what you said in any language. It is odd and so pleasant. Well, perhaps the village children will forget to wonder at you soon, Nan said, smiling her grave smile. You can't stay strangers to them always. And now I have a surprise for you, a nice one. Your mother said that I was to take you to buy shoes this morning. She gave me some money for it. Let's clear the table and start right away. The children clapped their hands. Their winter boots were certainly well worn, and Kay's had a hole at the toe. Gentians were both broken out at the sides. You could see at a glance that they were beyond repair. Oh, goody, goody, cried Kay. That will be one thing less for them to laugh at anyway. Very soon they were out on the street walking toward the stores. They stopped to look in at all the windows. Nan was as interested as they and did not mind how much they loitered. But at last they reached the shoe store. It was right up against the greengrocer's store with its windows full of vegetables and fruit. In the shoe store window were shoes, of course, several rows of them, smart and shining. When they got into the store, the first thing they saw was Rose Marie, the artist's little granddaughter. She was sitting between her governess, Miss Prine, and her nurse, Polly, being fitted to a pair of white sandals. Her merry brown eyes met Nan's and Gentian's with friendliness, but when they came to Kay's, they said the same thing they always said as plain as day. I like you ever so much. If only we were allowed, we might be such splendid playmates. I have read so many jolly stories that I want to tell you. I like sea stories best. Stories of pirates and runaway boys and hidden treasure. You do too, I know. And I want you to let me climb your tree. You're splendid at climbing. Yesterday I thought you were falling, but you caught yourself. Oh, I do want to play with you. Good morning, Nan said, smiling down into the friendly merry eyes. But the governess and the nurse stared coldly, and each put a hand on Rosemary's arm. Their eyes said plainly, What do you mean by speaking to our charge, and who are you anyway? We have never seen you in the village before, but we know these children. They are foreigners and refugees. Our precious charge is not to know such strangers. They said nothing with their voices in spite of all their eyes had said, so Nan could not know their thoughts, for she had turned away to a clerk who had come forward from the back of the store. Good morning, she now greeted him in her clear, cool voice. Good morning, he answered politely enough, but perhaps because his business was shoes, his eyes went at once to her feet. Nan's strange home-made sandals with their twisted grass straps, he looked amazed. The children's worn, hopeless winter boots, he looked superior. What can I do for you? he asked. I want barefoot sandals for this boy and girl, please. Have you some? I think so, said the clerk. But by now he had guessed who the children were, and so not only their holy shoes made him know them poor. I have some, but they are dear this year, the war. Shoes haven't come down much yet. Still, we have to wear shoes. How much are the barefoot sandals? When he had told her, she shook her head. No, we haven't enough for that. I am sorry. I am sorry, too, said the clerk. And perhaps he would have helped them to find something cheaper. But just at that minute, the clerk who was waiting on Rose Marie came to ask his help. He hurried away with her. 
Oh, dear, and there isn't another shoe store in town, whispered Kay. He was very crestfallen, and Gentian's blue eyes were misty. Let us make certain of that before giving up, Nan answered reassuringly. I thought I saw another shoe store right beside this as we came in. We can try there. Oh, no, that was the greengrocer's. Didn't you see all the vegetables and fruit in the window? And the other side is the stationer's. But Nan shook her head. I saw a barefoot sandal in the window. I only came on here past it because you pulled me. The children followed her out into the street, hopeful in spite of themselves. Rosemarie, back in the store, gazed wistfully after them, but her two attendants looked at each other over her head and laughed. Who can that girl be? Miss Prine wondered. A queer creature, and did you see the sandals? She's probably the general housework girl the foreigner advertised for, the one who was to be fond of children, Polly answered. I never thought anybody'd answer at all. Well, this one certainly doesn't look like anybody. <laughs> so you thought right. Both Polly and Miss Prine herself laughed at this as though it were very clever. But Rosemarie did not laugh and she did not understand why they laughed. Perhaps that was because she only half heard what they said. Her real thoughts had followed away after Kay and Gentian into the spring sunlight. And Nan, too. Nan had been to Rosemarie like a being made out of sunlight in the dim store, her voice asking for barefoot sandals, so clear, so cool, had sounded like the stream flowing through her grandfather's tulip garden. Rosemarie's feet wanted to get up and follow Nan out into the sunshine, out into the spring morning. But her attendants wedged her in from either side, and the clerk was trying on another white sandal, one with two straps and a silver buckle. Rosemarie remembered that she was not allowed to play with village children, to say nothing of these strangers. She dropped her eyes so that the clerk might not look up and see them. They were merry no longer. They were more misty than gentians had been. Chapter 4 Kay and Gentian are Measured As for Kay and Gentian, when they got out into the spring sunshine, they were surprised to find that Nan had been right after all. There was a little narrow door squeezed in between the door they had just left and the greengrocer's and beside the door was a very small window with one barefoot sandal standing alone in the middle of the display case. Why, this was never here before, Kay exclaimed. I know perfectly well. It is such a little window and such a little narrow door. You may have overlooked it, Nan said. But Kay shook his head. He was sure that it had not been there yesterday when he went to school. He had stopped to look at the shoes in the regular shoe store next door, wondering when his mother would be able to buy him and Gentian some new ones. If the tiny window with its one sandal had been there then, he would have noticed quickly enough and guessed that since it was so small, its prices might be lower. But now that the children were close to the little window, they saw that it was not like glass at all. It was dimmer than glass and yet clearer at the same time. The sandal seemed a long way off, as though they were looking at it through very deep but very clear crystal water. And it was not a leather barefoot sandal. 
It looked alive somehow, and it was the color of silver and tremulous with light. They did not remember all this until later, though, for Nan had pushed open the door and they followed her in. They were surprised to find the little shop so light. How could it be, with such a tiny window? But right away they saw that the light came from above, spring sunlight as bright and full as in a garden. The walls of the shop were blue, the color of the sky. Kay felt that he could walk through any one of the four walls right away and away, for after all they did not seem like blue walls at all, more like blue air. The floor was just clean white sand. There was no one in the shop when they arrived, but the opening door had started up a little oven bird. His wings whirred past their faces, and he soared up, up, singing his delightful flight song. They had only time to glimpse his olive-green back, his white breast with the dark spots, and his orange crown before he was gone. "'He must be the signal that customers have come,' Nan said, looking up after the song. "'How strange!' thought the children. Why, he takes the place of a bell. But how do they ever keep him from flying off? For there isn't a roof away off up there. There's only the sky, surely. The oven bird's song must have been a signal, though, for at that instant a clerk came through the side of one wall as though through a curtain. I say it was a clerk, but it was such a clerk as you are not apt to find in any shop for all your searching. He was an old man, but very tall and thin and straight, and he was dressed in a long blue robe with a blue hood. It was not air blue like the curtains, but more night blue like a spring dusk. From under the hood his eyes, dark and piercing, yet kindly too, looked at the two children and at Nan. Then, like the clerk in the store next door, he looked down at their feet. "'These children are in search of shoes, I see,' he said. "'But you,' to Nan, with a keen glance at her, "'have made some for yourself as fine and serviceable as any I could possibly get for you.' Nan nodded. "'Yes, but Kay and Gentian do need some new ones badly. "'Have you any barefoot sandals to fit them?' "'I have sandals,' said the shoeman. But of course I must measure the children if I am to be sure that any will fit. The children glanced about for a bench on which to sit, so that the shoeman might measure their feet. But there was no bench there, and nothing at all in the little shop. No shelves, shoe boxes, no counter, no cash register, nothing but the blue curtains and the sunshine, and the little oven bird who had come back to his oven shaped nest, and his little mate who was sitting on her eggs. The nest was in some grass, growing in the sand at the foot of one of the blue curtains. Nan seemed surprised by nothing. She acted just as though this might be any store, and not just the strangest store in the world. And the shoeman did not notice the children's wonder, but went about measuring them in a very matter-of-fact way. But such a way to measure! He went first to Gentian and tilted her face up toward the sunny distance. Then, bending down a little from his tall height, he looked several seconds into her blue eyes. His own eyes never wavered in their piercing but quiet gaze, nor did Gentian's eyes waver, for she almost saw strange things deep in the old man's eyes, things that she had no words to describe afterward, and she looked steadily, trying to see more. 
the shoeman straightened up. Yes, you do well to bring her here for shoes, he said. Her measure is AX, and she will want silver. How can he measure our feet by looking into our eyes? the children puzzled. Then the shoeman moved to K, and bending, measured his eyes with his piercing, quiet gaze. K's look did not wander either. It was sure and straight. But K afterwards said that the shoeman's eyes had just been eyes, and that the vast distances and golden fields that Gentian had almost seen there did not show to him at all. The shoeman said, "'Very good also, very good indeed. "'He will want gold, A.N.' "'Then he went away up the narrow stairs "'at the farthest end of the shop. "'The children had never seen such high steep stairs before, "'and they ended just in clear light. "'When the shoeman had climbed up and up and reached the light, "'he went behind it as behind a curtain.' A clearer, more crystal light than sunlight shone out a second as he moved through. The children stood looking up and wondering all the minutes he was away, until the crystal light shone out again, and the shoeman came down the stairs with a pair of sandals in each hand. They were such beautiful sandals, the children could only stare. They sat on the floor to put them on. The shoeman had been right in his measurements. They fitted exactly. But Gentian, in spite of her shining eyes and her great delight in the beautiful sandals, looked doubtful. "'You see, for us they ought to be durable,' she said. "'We have to wear them for such a very long time. These are so light and so delicate. I am afraid Mother would be troubled.' But she said it very wistfully indeed, for never had she even dreamed that such light, beautiful footwear could be in the world. But the shoeman reassured her. These are durable, he said. Made indeed of the most durable thing in the world. You may outgrow them, but you can never wear them out. At that, Gentian was relieved and glad. She looked at the sandals more closely and saw that they were covered with little silver bees, butterflies, birds, flowers, and even little silver rivers running down to little silver seas. She was overjoyed. Just as Kay was putting his golden sandals on, the oven bird suddenly whirred up again, singing his bubbling sudden song, for the street door had opened and another customer come in. Gentian heard Kay gasp and turned her eyes away from her lovely new sandals to see why. Then she too gasped and stayed wide-eyed, for there stood the wind boy. No, of course, it was not the statuette their mother was making come to life, such things don't happen. It was the real wind boy, the model for Mother's statuette, the boy himself, big. No one could doubt it, and so much more alive. The thick, clustering curls on his head were the color of the morning rays of the sun, and as gleaming. He was taller than Kay by two heads, and slim but sturdy. He was dressed in a purple tunic that did not come to his knees, and his face and arms and neck and legs were touched with the sun to golden brown. His tall purple wings were folded down his back, and so the children just at first did not see them. Kay's father in the happy past years had told Kay many of the old Greek myths, and now Kay thought, The wind boy is one of the gods. But Gentian thought, He's 
the nicest boy I ever saw, except Kay, and he is so different from Kay that he mightn't be a boy at all. Well, said the shoeman, turning to the newcomer, do you want sandals too? The wind boy nodded and came nearer. The children saw now that there was a cloud in his eyes and across his bright brows. He did not look as though he remembered his wings or that he could fly. I shall have to measure you, you know, said the shoeman. The children were surprised to, to hear that the shoeman's voice was rather stern. Then he tipped the wind boy's face up to the sunny distance and bent above his eyes. The wind boy's eyes did not waver, but Gentian, sitting on the sand near his feet, saw him clench his hands as though he were trying hard at something. The shoeman looked longer into the wind boy's eyes than he had looked into Kay's and Gentian's, but at last he turned away with a deep sigh. Have you found the mask yet and destroyed it? he asked. No, no, cried the wind boy, but I have hunted and hunted and tried so hard. I am sorry, said the shoeman, not looking any more at the wind boy, but you don't measure for any of my sandals. At that, a strange and surprising thing happened. The wind boy suddenly threw himself down beside Gentian where she sat on the sand, and looking straight at her, began speaking very fast. Oh, I did make the horrid mask, he said. I did wear it and frighten the children. I thought it would be such fun. I made it out of leaves and stems and bark and grass. I worked very hard and thought it was very clever. Then I went out with it, laughing behind it all the time. But when the children ran and screamed with terror, and one little fellow tumbled down and cried bitterly, why, then it wasn't fun any more. I was disgusted with the old mask that had made the little fellow cry, so I threw it away over your artist's hedge and wanted never to see it again. But someone picked it up, and ever since, whoever it was that picked it up has been wearing it at twilight to frighten the children. You are a human child yourself. Even if you are here in the clear village with a pair of the shoeman's best sandals on, can't you help me? Can't you tell me who picked up that mask and is wearing it? For until I get it back and destroy it so that it can never frighten any child again, none of my own playmates can play with me, or be anything but kind and sorry like the shoeman here. Can't you help me? Gentian was all eagerness and pity. No, we don't know either who has the mask and wears it at twilight she said as quickly as the wind-boy had spoken, and looking straight at him. "'But I will help you, wind-boy, if I can, and Kay will help too, I know. Together we ought to get it back. Then you will tear it all to pieces and be happy again. But I don't see why you need be unhappy anyway, since it isn't your fault any more. It's not you who are wearing it at twilight,' she added. "'Some day you will understand about that. You and the wind-boy too,' said the shoeman." But Gentian and the wind-boy hardly heard the shoeman's words. They were looking at each other with great friendliness. Gentian whispered comfortingly, Don't mind. Kay and I will help, truly. By now Kay's sandals were buckled. They fitted, and were very nearly as beautiful as Gentian's. The pictures on these sandals were in gold. There were trees and mountains, deer running in gardens and waterfalls. In Kay's heart, he wondered what the boys in the school would say to these. Would they laugh? Well, let them. For once he would not care, for he could trust the shoeman. 
But now Nan was offering the shoeman the money that Detra had given her for the shoes. The children suddenly held their breath, for after all it might not be enough. Indeed, how could it be enough for such beautiful sandals? The shoeman counted it over on his palm. Then he handed it back. The old woman at the door in the sunshine outside will take it, he said, and give you a receipt. She is my cashier today. So Nan thanked him, and the children thanked him, and they went to the door. Gentian was the last out, and she turned to look at the wind-boy over her shoulder. He was gazing after them ever so wistfully. His wings dropped down his back. Oh, come, she called. Come to play with us. With a glad bound, he was at her side and followed through the door. The shoeman looked long after his customers with pleasure in his eyes. Gentian measured perfectly, he said to himself, as though it were a very pleasant thing. And I think she will help the wind boy. And then he shall have his sandals, too. Then he stepped away through the blue curtains, and only the two little oven birds were left in the shop. Outside at the door there was an old woman selling pencils. She looked very poor with her ragged shawl and patched skirts, and she was lame, for a crutch lay by her side. She was seated on a camp stool, and the pencils were spread out on a board across her wide lap. The children had seen her many times before on their way to and from school, for every day in sun or rain she came here to sell her pencils. "'This must be the old woman I am to pay,' Nan said to the children, and stopping, she handed the old woman the money that Detra had given her for the shoes. The old woman seemed very much surprised at so much money, and all the hundreds of wrinkles in her face turned merry. "'Thank you, and thank you,' she said, and began counting out the pencils. "'Why, it just takes every last one!' "'All the better,' answered Nan. "'Now you can go home and spend the day with your grandchildren. It is Saturday, and they will be home from school. Perhaps you will tell them stories.' "'You are right,' said the old woman. "'They like my stories, I can tell you, and it's little time I have to give them.' She got up, and gathering her shawl around her, hobbled off happily on her crutch. Gentian and Kay now looked at all the pencils that were theirs with wonder. They never had had enough before, for they were forever drawing pictures. These would last a year at least. But I don't see what good it does the shoeman, or why the pencils are receipts, puzzled Kay. Well, neither do I, answered Nan with her gravest smile. But we can trust the shoeman and do what he says. There is some reason in it somewhere, we may be sure. Yes, the children could surely trust the shoeman. They would never forget him and his kind, piercing eyes, and Gentian would never forget the things she had almost seen in those eyes. Kay walked with Nan, but Gentian was already on far ahead with the wind boy. They were holding hands and running very fast indeed, gentian's coppery braids and the wind-boy's sunlit curls blowing back in the soft spring breeze. Straight down the street they ran and around the corner, already comrades.